Welcome to the podcast that takes a feminist look at the world of money. My name is Alice Merry, and this is the Feminist Finance Podcast. Today, I interviewed Natalie Molina Nino. Natalie is an entrepreneur and investor at O-Cubed. She launched her first tech startup at the age of 20 and is now a veteran in the worlds of technology, entrepreneurship and investment. And she's committed to building high growth businesses that benefit women and the planet. So you can see why I was so happy to have her on the podcast. Natalie is the author of Leapfrog, the new revolution for women entrepreneurs. I recommend giving it a read. It's a practical, witty and quite irreverent look at getting ahead as a woman entrepreneur. There's a lot more I could tell you about Natalie. She has a very impressive resume, but the interview itself is full of gems. And I'd rather we get straight to hearing from Natalie herself. Hi, Natalie. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Feminist Finance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hello. With a name like that, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Good to hear. I wanted to start by asking you about O-Cubed and how you started it. So one of the lessons in your book, Leapfrog, that I thought was brilliant was that entrepreneurs, rather than starting with their passion, should find things that they want to punch. So I'd be really interested to know what was the thing that you wanted (laughs) to punch that led you to founding O-Cubed? Sure. So O-Cubed is largely, really, it's my, my family office. It's the entity through which I do my investing, uh, so my speaking, my advising. Um, I don't really do consulting much these days, but when I do, um, it's through Cubed. And um, it's kind of in the name, uh, the thing that I wanted to punch. <laughs> and that is that um, especially, but not only, but especially in the space of, of gender, whether it's um, gender lens investing or, you know, gender advocacy around gender parity, you know, everything from income disparities to everything else that keeps um, women from achieving real equity. Um, There's a lot of pinkwashing, right? There's a lot of kind of let's slap a pink logo on the thing and let's put a beautiful sculpture of a fearless girl on Wall Street in front of a bull for marketing purposes. But when you kind of look under the hood and you see what is this thing, whether it's a product or a program or a law, so many things, you know, what is it actually accomplishing? There's a whole lot of optics um, and not a lot of outcomes. And we know that because, of course, there are fewer women at the executive level in publicly traded companies worldwide than there were even 10 years ago. Um, There are fewer women graduating as engineers in not every country, but in a lot of countries, certainly in the U.S. And so, you know, there are fewer women this year getting venture capital than last year. And so there's this sense of like everybody's talking about it and gender is a thing that's out there and it's top of mind, but there aren't really a lot of real outcomes of things where you can truly say that the dial is being moved in the right direction. And so outcomes over optics is in a way my response to that of saying, I want to focus, be it in my investing or in my advocacy or in my writing or in my advising I want to focus on outcomes over optics. It's not to say that optics don't matter. It's not to say that representation doesn't matter and that the stories that we tell don't matter. But if I'm choosing between outcomes or optics, I choose outcomes. And it's, I know that both have a place, but I'm really going to be focused on getting real outcomes so that we can start to see numbers in some measurable way actually shift. 
So it would be great to know how does um, O cubed bring about the kind of outcomes that you're looking for? I mean, primarily, I would say it's through innovations around investing, right? And, and I say innovations kind of in quotation marks because I don't know that focusing on companies that benefit women and the planet, which is ultimately my thesis, is all that innovative. I mean, women represent 51% of the population and, you know, we all live on the same planet and one would think, right, that we would all be united in this idea of trying to, you know, not save the planet because the planet's going to be fine, but to save our place in it because it probably won't be um, able to sustain human life if we continue on the path that we're on. And so um, that's one way, right? It's investing in companies that benefit women and the planet and doing it in a way, this is the second strategy and the second thing that I do at Ocubed is doing it in a way that is most effective and most equitable. So last December, um, O-Cubed, so my organization, as well as others like Blue.io and a number of other partners, we launched an alternative to venture capital that we're calling Builder Capital. And again, kind of innovation in quotations, because what Builder Capital is, is ultimately, it's the good old-fashioned way of investing, the way that people did a long time ago, where they focus on making sure that the goal is to be all in with every company. So if you invest in 10 companies, you're all in on all 10 companies. If those companies require, and and they always do, require support, you roll up your sleeves and you step in and you really help the founders get it not not only up and off the ground, but then be successful and grow and achieve whatever the big goals are for that company. That's starkly different from what venture capitalists do, right? Venture capitalists do portfolio management, which is to say that if they invest in 100 companies, they're really just focused on a handful of them um, really being wildly successful. And they understand that, according to the latest statistics, about 75% of the companies they invest in are not going to survive. And they're okay with that. And that's the model. I think that at a time when you have wealth inequality and when women are getting 2.8% of all venture capital, um, I just think that that model, which is often called spray and pray, um, it's not how we build societies. Like imagine if you flew an airline that had 75% failure rate. Like it's just, it's uh, uh, sure, like maybe it's right for some people, but it's not right for most of us. And so I would say O-Cube does mainly those two things. Is I invest in companies that benefit women and the planet, and I'm trying to reimagine better ways and structures around investing that are less expensive that are less extractive and that are more about really building things that last. When I looked at the tra- the website of the trade association builder captors that you set out, that you set up, one of the things that really stood out to me actually was the language, even of this whole idea of builder capital. So there was words like community, trust, health, partnership, support, build rather than extract. And it just really jumped out to me as language that isn't typical to read in an investing context and language that we actually yeah. often, we often consider quite female. And I wonder if you think there's something to that, something to that different language. Uh, I hope there is. Um, there's a book by a researcher, um, uh, a gentleman by the name of, I think, John Erzema, um, who came from one of the big, massive ad agencies. He specifically ran the the market research side of the business. He's a data guy. And he called it the Athena Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they took 
tens of thousands of people all around the world, and they basically said, in solving the massive problems of today, not the ones of 10 years ago or 20 years ago or further back, but solving the massive problems that we're facing today and the ones that we will face, what are the traits of leadership that are the most valuable and important in this sort of new paradigm? And at the same time, what was interesting is that prior to asking that question, he asked people to categorize leadership skills into the two buckets, which are binary, which are not real, they're stereotypical, right? They're subjective, but nonetheless, he asked them to say, which of these leadership traits are stereotypically female and which of them are stereotypically male? And they fell in all of the buckets that I think you were alluding to, right? The things that are typically assigned to female versus male traits. And what was funny is that in, I don't know how many countries, it was over 16 countries, I believe, the results were consistently the same, that unanimously, I mean, it was, it was literally in like the 80 percentiles and above. Um, so maybe not unanimously, but like vast majority of people assigned highest value in solving the problems of our time to the things that have been stereotypically considered female leadership traits. And I love that a guy did that study, that he's a total data geek. This is not like Gloria Steinem commissioned a study and shockingly it all agrees with her. You know, This was someone who did not belong necessarily in this camp with us naturally. This is not, he doesn't have a lifetime of advocating for women's leadership. This isn't a thing, right? He, he's just looking at the pure data. He's a bald white guy. And he's a secret weapon for me. We're, we know each other and, and we brought him to things and had him speak. And he's wonderful and I recommend his book. But I, I think that that's where I'm coming from. And I think that for me, it's more about what are the most effective strategies for investing and building things, the ones that yield real lasting returns and the ones that are most aligned with the kind of outcomes that we want to see in the world. And I think, yeah, you know, it it happens that those are things that have been considered stereotypically female, but they're obviously traits that men and women can, you know, embrace and embody. Um, And I say it happens um, because I'm an engineer and I like to make sure that there's good solid data behind everything that I do. But you know, I'm not going to lie that I'm not satisfied with that and I don't embrace it wholeheartedly, you know, wholeheartedly. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about the climate crisis because I think that's an area where this approach that you're talking about is particularly relevant and perhaps we do need a different approach or a different set of values to tackle this, you know, truly colossal challenge that faces humankind, as you've mentioned. And, and also one where the idea you mentioned of opti- um, outcomes over optics is really important because we've seen really excessive focus on optics and fighting climate change mm-hmm. and really disappointing progress on outcomes. So I'd be really interested to hear your perspective on what the role, the role that investors have in achieving real outcomes in, in mitigating the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be having that conversation because, right, just last week or the week before, Jeff Bezos announced that he's, you know, putting $10 billion into climate, right? Um, the fine print of that, of course, is that it's philanthropy. And the fine print even below that is, you know, in the U.S., philanthropy is a way of avoiding paying taxes. The, the truth is, is if Jeff Bezos simply paid taxes at the rate that um, 
I don't know, a blue collar worker in the United States pays taxes and at the same tax bracket, it would be a lot more than 10 billion. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then we could all democratically decide what to do with that money to collectively do what's best you know, for us, you know, as democracies do. Um, but instead, you know, he, he's going to choose what that $10 billion does. And that's, it remains to be seen what actually happens with that money. But the fact is, is if you collect every philanthropic dollar on earth, it's still not nearly as much money as, it, as what goes into the capital markets through investing, mm-hmm. which is why the answer to your question about what can investors do um, in the climate crisis, the answer is everything. The answer is um, way more than philanthropy because the sheer math right, of how much money is being traded as investments versus how much money is being given away in philanthropy makes it very clear that the, the, the world moves because of investment activity. And I think that what investors can do, it's multi-tiered. I would say my top, top things, are kind of a mindset shift. Um, one of them is that um, a lot of investments are focused, um, especially when it comes to climate, they're focused on new innovative things. They're, they're very um, aligned with like the startup ethos, right? Of you know, the cover of a magazine talking about some interesting new thing in the climate world in business is going to be some new technology, right? Somebody designed some, I don't know, kelp-based you know, replacement for plastic or something that's brand spanking new and it's sexy and it, that's why it got you on the cover of this magazine. Um, and I think what people forget is that Two things. New technology takes a long time to commercialize. Right? In 2009, Google X kicked off the autonomous vehicle project. And most of us are not getting to work every day being driven by our autonomous vehicles in 2020. Right? So it's been 11 years. And it's not to criticize Google X for being slow. That's how long new technology and new innovation takes to commercialize. It takes a lot of time. And I would say that the number one thing that we have to focus on in investing is to remember that we have less than 12 years before civilization as we know it shifts. Because even today, never mind 12 years from now, even today, the air that we breathe um, today is at a stage where no, there is no evidence of any human life existing and breathing air the way that you and I are breathing air today. There is literally no data to show what happens um, with air like this. So we're kind of already, you know, at this incredibly critical point, but we don't have time for new technology. And the good news is that we don't need to have time for new technology because it's all there. All the research has been done. All of the, all the tech that's going to save us is in front of us. But what happens is that those existing technologies, those mid-sized companies that are already extracting, you know, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and maybe turning it into energy, like all of those technologies that are in the shape of something that already exists, they're not sexy. And a lot of the times we as investors, we're looking for that sexy new thing. Not that middle of the road, mid-sized company that needs a little bit of financing in order to grow. For some reason, that's not as sexy as the brand new invention that somebody came up with in a lab somewhere. You know, again, that gets you on the cover of a magazine. And so I would say the number one thing that we as investors have to do is stop focusing on the next new shiny object. Stop prioritizing that new invention when we know that the technology that already exists and many of it that has existed for a long time is what is ultimately going to get us um, 
to at least mitigate some of what's coming, right? And so that's number one. And that has to do with the culture around investing and the obsession with shiny new objects and all of the media apparatus that surrounds it. And I would say that the second thing is to remember that the social dimension cannot be divorced. I have had many investors kind of say, look, you know, climate is, a, is an existential threat. So like, Natalie, this business of like gender lens investing and looking at reproductive health and all of the different things that, you know, um, are top of mind when you're looking at investing in things that benefit women, that's nice. But, you know, I'm focused on climate because I feel like that's the most, you know, that's the highest priority right now. It's the most critical thing. And there's that binary thinking of like, it's either climate or it's gender or it's social justice or it's civil rights or it's, you know, diversity and inclusion. Those are false paradigms. I think that we as investors have to start embracing that the idea that uh, women being subjugated, women not being on equal footing is part of what's contributing to climate. Um, not having women on boards, not having women um, in a different you know, mindset making decisions um, at the global level in positions of power is part of what got us here and it's part of what's going to get us out if we fix it. And so um, these false dichotomies of like we either do one or the other um, are problematic and I think that we as investors have to start realizing that they're all interconnected um, and if we start doing that and our money starts to go in the direction of that more holistic integrated view of things, I think we'll start to see that we really start to put our money where it's most going to make an impact. It's a really interesting point, this connection between the social and the climate issues. And I was reading a really interesting article the other day in The Guardian, I'll put a link in the show notes, where they'd collected evidence showing that climate breakdown is increasing violence against women and girls. So they'd collected evidence about the violence faced, increased violence faced by women environmental activists, about the violence faced by people um, being displaced by climate change, as well as increased domestic violence during times of resource scarcity due to the climate crisis. And I thought it was really interesting that women are finding themselves both at the forefront of being impacted by climate change and being held back in being part of the solution to it. You know, what's interesting about that framing is that it's both true, but it's also missing a critical part, and that is that I think oftentimes of late, we hear women, and especially people of color in the world, as being at the forefront of the first and the worst to be impacted by climate. The thing that often gets lost in that, because that's true, but the thing that often gets lost in that is that when you look at solutions and you look at the most effective ways to make an impact in reversing climate change, it also happens to be women. So I, I always try to balance. It's like we can talk about women as being the victims of climate and how unjust that is. But we also have to talk about the fact that investing in women um, is actually probably one of the most effective ways to make an impact on climate. And I'll give you just one example. People often think that I'm, that's a proxy for like, you know, reproductive health. And yes, it's true that the more educated women are and the more access they have to birth control, um, easy, affordable access, the more they willingly choose to have smaller families. That is a fact. Um, but it's more than that. Like there was a study um, and there's research that was compiled by um, Catherine Wilkinson, who is one of the primary uh, writers of an amazing book called Project Drawdown. 
and she has written two important sections, and they're like the top 10 things that you can do for climate change, and they center around women. And one of them that I'll always remember is about smallholder farming, right? If we look at small farmers all around the world, and we look at the amount of resources available to the male-owned land versus the female-owned land, what we see is that because of sexism um, and because of sort of maybe traditional gender roles, even in the same social strata where the economic situation is the same, the male-owned plot of land still has access to more resources. And therefore, those plots of land yield more, and they're more effective, and they're more efficient, uh, and they're just more productive. And so if all we did was to take smallholder farmers um, that are women, and we just leveled the playing field, and we, made, we, give them, we gave them as many resources as their neighbor who's male, and leveled the playing field there, we would see at a global scale a massive uptake in the amount of productivity that we have in productive agricultural land. And that alone, right there, would make a massive impact on climate, on our ability to sustain ourselves, um, you know, generally. Um, and that's a perfect example of, sure, you know, we can focus on women being victims of a problem, but I love the idea of balancing that and making it really clear with the data and the studies that exist already that um, I don't want to sh have women to shoulder the burden of, guess what, women are now responsible for saving, you know, us from climate change. <laughs> but I will say that it's very clear that the levers that are most effective center women. And, and that's when we talk about solutions, not just victims. That's really interesting. And it's something I've seen as I've been doing a piece of work on plastic pollution, on how we can reduce marine plastic pollution. And mm. something really interesting about the kinds of in investments and the, you know, international uh, donors focus is that it's very much on the big scale things regional initiatives big infrastructure projects and there are real gaps mm. there but there's very very little money going into grassroots and women's initiatives to tackle plastic pollution on the front line there's some really interesting examples of how some women's as uh, how uh, some businesses established by women are having an impact on, on plastic pollution yeah i mean i know of a project um by a Nigerian named G, who is, um, and I'm, I, I don't even want to try to butcher his last name because I know I, I will get it wrong, um, but he has enlisted women in the uh, Niger Delta using distributed ledger technology to be able to cut kind of the banks out of the picture um, and any corruption that might come from that and pay them directly for taking a plot of land in the Niger Delta and giving them a kit to be able to clean the Delta at scale, and so now you have thousands and thousands of women that are being gainfully employed and that are being actively, you know, included in an effort to clean up the environment in that in that particular place, right? And it's really effective, and um, and it's also just an amazing way, economically, never mind climate related, of giving directly the people who are going to be the most productive a way to sustain themselves, you know, while also obviously doing something amazing for their, for their home, right? And I'm curious to know, as an investor, from the perspective of OQ, is this the kind of business, like the one that you've just mentioned in Nigeria, is this the kind of business you think is attractive to you as an investor? Hmm. It depends, right? I do a certain kind of investing where I really focus about on, on scale. If, if, um, but that's not 
necessarily the only way, right? Um, there are people who focus on debt vehicles. There are people who do revenue sharing, uh, royalty base. You know, there are definitely many different ways to invest that are separate and different from venture capital that require different types of growth metrics. For me, what would be interesting about the model of what I described, right, if, if it was profitable and it was the kind of thing that could be replicated in many, many places around the world, then that would be interesting to me because my thesis from the beginning has always been that I don't care about taking one founder and turning her into a billionaire. Like I think a lot of people are, are focused on that kind of investing. I prefer to focus on companies and businesses that will have the potential to take a billion women and raise them up. And that might be raise them up from abject poverty into, you know, surviving with basics that they didn't have before. Or it might be taking a whole group of people like in the United States, for example, elder care professionals, who take care of, you know, the elderly in your home or in hospitals and other places, hospice, they tend to make less than a living wage and they tend to be contractors. And I remember looking at a company that was proposing to pay almost double the pay of elder care workers and make it for people um, who are looking to employ elder care workers, making it so that there is a great easy, turnkey way to go online, find amazing people to come to your home and take care of the elders in your family. Um, and so from a business standpoint, it was a great company that made it very easy for the consumer to interact with them and to give them clear guidance about how to go through the process and pick great people to take care of their family members. But on the back end, it treated workers far better than most elder care organizations in that it paid them a living wage and it gave them health insurance. That all of the elder care workers that will be a part of that company, they're not going to become billionaires. This is not like, you know, let's make a bunch of these people millionaires even. Let's take them from making less than a living wage and having no health insurance to making a living wage and having basic things like health insurance. If we can replicate that model in every city in the United States and then go outside of the U.S. and put it in any place that it's needed and that it will thrive... That's the sort of company that excites me. And so for me, it's very much about impact at scale. If it's something where it's like only in the Niger Delta and it's unique to that one place, um, then that's probably not an investment for me, but that's just because this is my thesis. My thesis is about impacting women at scale and making sure that the ideas that exist in the world that can do that um, will flourish. And usually impact at scale, if done successfully and if done profitably, uh, it also translates into really great returns for investors. So there shouldn't have to be a sacrifice on the return on investment. It's interesting to me that that thesis includes the fact that you're not specifically interested in investing in women entrepreneurs, rather in companies that the founder could be of any gender, but have a real impact on women or on people or on achieving equality. And that kind of stood out to me as being different from other approaches that I've seen, where very much the focus is about getting women into the boardroom or getting women entrepreneurs access to more funding, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Here's my thought about that. I, it's not to say that representation, representation doesn't matter. And it's not to say that the lack of women at the executive level, the lack of women at, on boards, it's not to say that those things don't matter. 
They do. And those things are getting a lot of play. And I think as a, as a true entrepreneur, right, what I tend to see is I kind of take a look at any market and I see where are the holes? What are the things that nobody's focusing on that need to be focused on and that have the ability to make real impact? And to me, um, it's not that women on boards and women founders and you know women being represented at very high levels isn't important. It's just that when I look at the landscape of women, and where there are equity issues, I see that we have focused and almost obsessed with women on the corner office. And 99% of women are never going to be C-level employees of a Fortune 500. They're never going to be founders of companies. They're never going to seek out venture capital. And that's okay, right? And I think that in the conversation about about um, enabling women to thrive and in defending the rights of women and seeking equality for women, somehow the women in the corner office have taken all of the oxygen. And I want to focus in addition to that on everyone else. I want to make sure that um, it isn't just about that founder getting venture capital, but it's about that factory worker being treated like a human being and that receptionist making sure that she has a long and, you know, productive career and can retire and can retire and, and live, you know, after she's retired and that she can afford to pay for her kids' schooling and have health insurance and all of the sort of basic things that so many women in the world do not have. And that's not about women in the corner office. It's not about founders or executives, right? And so um, it's, it's for me really about centering most women right in the middle of where I want to be solving problems and not simply focusing on those presidents and board members and executives. A lot of the people who listen to the Feminist Finance Podcast are people who are working within the financial sectors. They might be working within banks, insurance companies, and so on. And I was interested to hear what what role you think they can play in what you're discussing about impacting most women, about impacting the broader the broader world? And th- there was something that I listened to a, a talk you gave that I thought was really good, and it it turns the common refrain of getting to yes on its head, and talks about the need to exercise our no muscle, and that concept really stuck with me. And I was wondering what you think those of us who are maybe working within the financial sector, working within financial institutions, where do we need to be exercising our no muscle? Yeah, yeah, that came from, it was a play on the Harvard famous kind of classic book on negotiations um, that frankly is used in probably every business school called Getting to Yes. Right? Um, and as with most things in business, they have been framed through the lens of men. Right? And, um, and this idea that like, you start off with an assumption of no being the answer, and how do we take that no and turn it into a yes? Right? And I think about women in the workplace, and I think, first of all, that feels like a really glass-half-empty way of seeing the world. Everything is a no until you convert to a yes. It also feels like a bit of a zero-sum game. Like, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. You know, even though the book talks about, you know, trying to find win-win solutions, the, the framing is uh, binary, right? And, and I think that if women have any 
any skill that they have consistently shown throughout the ages to be really, really good at, is that we can, we can make do with the sort of lemons that are being thrown in our general direction. And in fact, we make lemonade out of those lemons. And, and I think that a lot of that has to do with um, focusing on accepting, right? Accepting that in the case of my community, you know, Latinas in the United States, accepting that we get 55 cents for every dollar that a white man gets, right? Accepting all of the sort of little injustices that we see in the workplace every single day and somehow surviving despite them. And I think that the point of my talk that day was what we need to exercise isn't our yes muscle. Our yes muscle is very well exercised and has been for a very long time. And if anything, what we need to do is exercise our no muscle and to practice saying no to the daily injustices, whether they be in the workplace at a micro level or in the world at large at a macro level. And I think that one of the things to answer your question that a professional in the finance world can do. Um, something that I wrote about in a Fast Company article last year uh, called Why is Finance So White? Um, and it's also Why is Finance So Male, um, in addition. And whether you are male or female, um, whether you are white or you're a person of color, I think it must disturb any rational human being, even if you're only focused on financial returns, it must be problematic for any thinking human being to know that in the total count of all markets in the world, we're not talking about just the developed world, we're not talking about just hedge funds, in the entire finance world globally, less than 2% of the people managing that money are women or people of color. It makes absolutely no sense, even just purely from a finance standpoint. That's incredibly undiversified. Why would you put all your eggs in the bucket of white men? <laughs> um, think of all of the ideas and the innovation and all of the things that we are essentially not putting on the table. Um, and so if I'm a professional in the finance world and I want to think about what I can personally do to move the dial on everything from climate to, to pay equity to all of the different sort of injustices that, you know, different people might have an affinity towards focusing on, I would focus first on that one thing, which is what would the finance world be if I called my university and I asked who manages our endowment? I graduated from this college. I know that at Columbia University, for example, they have over $10 billion in the endowment. I would like to know, as somebody who has contributed to that endowment, who are the managers that are managing that endowment? And do any of them look like me? Are there any of them who are women? Are there any of them who are women of color, et cetera? Or if I am um, putting my retirement into a 401k or some sort of a pension or a retirement fund, who are the organizations that manage that fund? And how many of them have hired um, or allocated portions of that pension um, or that retirement fund into managers who are women? And managers you know, who look like me. And I think that if we as individuals make those phone calls, ask those questions, it will start a groundswell of what we already see happening, right? You have uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock saying that, you know, people care about impact and we need to be thinking about ESG and all these different ways of investing that account for the negative externalities of climate and all these other concerns. Um, 
right now, in the case of BlackRock, we see a whole lot of shareholder letters and not necessarily a whole lot of moving of the dial, but hopefully that language will turn into action sometime soon. Um, and I think that the way to make it turn into action and to focus on those outcomes is for those of us that are in the industry to start to speak up and to start to ask those questions. How many of the people managing this amount of money, my retirement, my school's endowment, you know, my nonprofit whose board I sit on, you know, that has maybe its own endowment, like who is managing this money and how many of them look like me? And if the answer, and we already know what the answer is, is disappointing, then taking it a step further and saying, great, how are we going to fix this? That's really powerful. And you've definitely prompted me um, to realize that I actually don't know who men- who manages my pension. And this is definitely something that I should be looking into. And I think I really inspiring way that everybody listening can take a first step in addressing this problem and this really shocking statistic that managing the world's money 98 percent of the world's money is concentrated among white men and the huge power concentration that that also represents i wanted to finish by asking you a question that i've been asking every guest on the podcast so most of the time we're working to create change within a financial institution that's not designed for work to work for women, is not designed to get results for women. If you could reinvent the financial system, what would a feminist financial system look like to you? The first thing that I think I would do is I would think about the time horizons critically. I would... You know the way that people often say that the best way to build an organization is to be slow at hiring and fast at firing. Mm-hmm. You can argue whether that's true or not, but that pace, right, of like what is ideal, I think that we have mixed up what timelines and we want returns as quickly as possible, which actually a lot of the times robs us of potential upside because there is absolutely no doubt that long-term investing makes more money. I mean, if you have an argument with that, you could take it up with Warren Buffett. I mean, the data is there. And yet, so many of our financial systems are driven by short-term returns and short-term cycles for those returns. Um, I would question that, and I would revisit longer-term investment cycles and measuring and thinking in that way more so. And then when it comes to the existential problems that we face, like climate, I would argue that we are too slow on those. (laughs) Like, we are really impatient when it comes to investment returns, and we want everything to be fast. And, you know, I don't know a venture capitalist who has never never said, ah, if if it had been up to me, I would have held on to that because I would have made so much more money. But because my fund was a five-year-long fund and it was the fifth year, you know, we had to force them to be acquired or IPO or whatever the thing was, you know. But, you know, we all know that if we were more patient and if our structures were more patient on return, we would do better financially. And yet, when it comes to climate, we're perfectly happy putting our money into something that's going to take 10, 20 years to be commercial. And the environment doesn't have 10 or 20 years. And so I feel almost as though we have... Uh, we have to sort of turn it upside down and be impatient with the solutions that are in front of us, which I think is very feminist, right? I mean, I think feminist civil rights activists, they're often told, you know, go slow, you know, it's not all going to happen overnight, 
right? Be patient. <laughs> and a lot of activists, you know, when women took to the street, you know, in 2017, all around the world, it was because they were done being patient. And I think that impatience is definitely a feminist virtue. And I hope it continues to be a feminist virtue. And impatience with the solutions that we have right in front of us um, is something that I think would be a great quality for a feminist financial system to have. And then patience with building things and getting returns and building things that really have a chance of sticking and of being solid and sustainable, that's also, I think, a feminist virtue. Nobody is trying to send their kid to college when they're five years old. You know that a child takes time to develop and to learn and to grow and to be ready to leave the nest and do their thing, right? That's, that's something that, you know, we know to be true, and that's something that is also true not just when you're building up humans, but when you're building up institutions that will feed us. And I think that that's another thing that a feminist financial world can understand and appreciate. I love Natalie's take on feminist finance, patience on returns and impatience in tackling our social and environmental problems. I never thought of feminist finance before in terms of timelines, and it's just a fabulous way of seeing it. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Please do share the episode. Please do leave us a review and rate. And I look forward to speaking to you next time.